Well, good morning. Hey, it's great to see all of you here this morning. Thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us online. And uh, I also want to say thanks to Aaron for kind of taking the leadership of worship this morning as Pastor Nathan's over at our Windsor campus leading worship over there today. So thank you, Aaron, wherever you are. You're probably walking around over here now. But anyway, thanks to her. And so anyway, today we're continuing our series on worship going through the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And we're going to finish up the chapter we were looking at last week. And then next Sunday will be the last Sunday we're in 1 Corinthians. And so we're almost there to the end. Um, and so if you're, if you're new with us today and you're kind of jumping in here kind of through a, through a series, I always encourage you to go back and listen to what we've already covered. Um, we've been in 1 Corinthians ever since the beginning of the year, just breaking it up into smaller series. And kind of the, the, big, the big picture of the entire book of 1 Corinthians is that this was a church with a lot of problems, right? Now, we know there's no such thing as a perfect church, right? Amen. No such thing, right? And if you ever find that perfect church, the joke is don't join it because then it'll no longer be perfect, right? You'll, you'll mess it up, and I will too. So um, no such thing. Every church has got issues because we are full of people who are saved by the grace of God, but we still carry the sinful nature with us. And so we still you know, do things we shouldn't do. We still say things we shouldn't say and have attitudes we shouldn't have and all those sort of things. But God in his mercy and kindness and, you know, like we sang about, his, how he's slow to anger, quick to mercy. Uh, because of his graciousness, we're still able to be changed by him. And this church is his idea of how does God want to change the world through his people, the church, as, they, as we proclaim the gospel here and far. And we're, we're striving to do that. You know, it's exciting to see what the Lord is doing here in and through all of us here at Canaan Baptist Church as we're now in, in three English-speaking campuses. We've got a Nepali campus. We're, we're planting a, a Hispanic church plant over in Fairmont City. And just over the globe, we're, we're part with, with mission partners and work that we're doing. You know, we're seeing God just plant churches. We have 36 churches now in Senegal. I mean, it's just crazy what all God's doing through you as the body of Christ. Amen. It's exciting. This past week in India, um, our partner Bethlehem Christian Academy has launched through a church plant that we're, we're, we, we have helped start they started the first school in India for Bethlehem Christian Academy. This is their very first week of school. And it's just really exciting to see these about 25 kids who live in the slums. Yeah, amen. 25 kids who, who live in one of the poorest areas I have ever seen. I mean, I've been to Haiti in 2010, and Haiti is poor, but the slums that we saw in India I think are even poorer than what I saw in Haiti. And just to know that now, because of generosity of, of, of you guys and other partners that have gone together to sponsor these kids, we now have a school in India, in the Middle East slums. These kids are getting one good hot meal a day. They've got one nice pair of set of clothes to wear as a uniform. Uh, they're we'll be able to pay the, the teachers, and we've got a, a building for them to meet in. It's just exciting to see what's going on. That's all because we who are sinners saved by the grace of God for the glory of God are able to partner together and take the gospel both here and far. And that's exciting. So even as messed up as we are, by God's grace, we still get to see God do great things in us 
and through us. And that's the case for the Corinthian church as well. And so we've looked at a lot of problems the Corinthian church has had. We looked at issues of division. They were very divided. They had different leaders, and some were going to say, hey, we're going to follow Paul. No, 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 we're going to follow Apollos. And it was crazy because Paul said, look, we all just follow Jesus, right? Let's just, let's just follow Jesus right? and, be, and be good and be united. So that was the section. Then we looked at a whole section on sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7. They had some crazy stuff going on in the church in Corinth. So we, we unpacked that through a little series we did called Love, Sex, and Dating. And then we looked at how they were very prideful and very arrogant, and they didn't want to serve each other, but they were all about themselves. And so we looked at the series going through chapters 8, 9, and 10 on, on laying it down, laying down our lives, laying down our rights out of love to serve others. And now we're in the section on worship. Chapters 11 through really the end is the problems they would have is they did what we're doing right now, gathering together to worship the Lord and some problems they were having. You know, again, pride and arrogance and looking at, we looked at spiritual gifts and how the purpose of our spiritual gifts is not to make ourselves look good, but to edify, to build up the body of Christ. And so we've been looking at that. We're gonna kind of finish that to today as we kind of also get another very controversial issue today. So I'm looking forward to that. Anyway, but uh, we'll tackle it as the word of God tackles it. So we're gonna start looking at uh, 1 Corinthians 14, reading verses 26 through the end of the chapter. So if you would please stand in honor of the reading of God's word. And you will know the controversial part when we get to it. So uh, just... Trust me, we will get to that and explain what it means. Um, it has to do with, with the role of ladies and leadership in the church. And uh, we're going to read this because, well, wait a minute, we just read this. Why was Aaron leading worship today? It's totally fine. We're totally within the, the confines of Scripture here. But let's read this. Verse 26. So what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. You can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, then he is not recognized. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. All right, here we go, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. And God, I just pray that as we tackle some of these tough teachings in scripture, that you would give us clarity, that you would give us all humility and understanding, and God, you would give us obedience. Um, God, we thank you that you save us, you rescue us, and that, Lord, your word is good, true, and right. And so, Father, we just pray you use this time just to impact every single one of us, the bigger picture, to live for your glory and honor. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks, go ahead and be seated. All right, so what is all this talking about? 
Well, let's, let's kind of just dive in. Here's the, the big thought this morning. Um, it's simply this, the goal of the gathering. Why do we do this right here? The goal of the gathering is we have one goal when we do this, and that is to meet with God. Amen? To meet with God. I mean, just before we hit this text, kind of the, the ending of this previous section, verse 24 and 25 says, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He's called to account by all, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. It's a powerful part of the passage. And that's kind of what launches Paul into this section that we just read. So that's the goal. The goal of the gathering is to meet with God. And the result of meeting with God is that we, the church, we are built up. We're, the biblical word is edified. It's like the word used in constructing a house. We are being built up. So let's, let's dive into this text and see how do, we, how do we meet with God and what happens as we meet with God. Well, number one, we meet with God through the proper use of gifts. Now, last week, we spent some time on talking about tongues, so if you missed that, go back and catch that up. We're not gonna rehash all of the teaching about tongues here, but as we already discussed, the Corinthians were all about their own status, their own social standing. It was a very competitive culture that they lived in. If you remember way back from the beginning of the series, Corinth was kind of a new city. Um, it had been kind of rebuilt within the 100 years of Paul coming here. And so all these people were moving to Corinth to establish new businesses and new trade. And, and so it was a very competitive culture, very competitive environment that resulted in how people dressed, how women wore their hair, to the jewelry they wore, to the way guys dressed. I mean, everything was about competition, social status, and all of these sort of issues, right? And so people were coming, getting saved, coming into the church, bringing that competitive nature into the church as well. And so when it came to issues like spiritual gifts, they kind of say, well, my spiritual gift is better than yours, and I'm better at what I do than you are, so that makes me more important to God than you are. And so it was all this kind of competitive nature that was going on. So Paul's saying that's, that's hogwash, right? The purpose of the gifts is not your own benefit. The purpose of the gifts is to build each other up. And so as we properly use our spiritual gifts, we meet with God, right? And so the gift had become all about them instead of being all about the Lord. And so um, as people were trying to outdo each other, that bred chaos and confusion. As God said, as, as Paul writes, God's not the author of confusion, but of peace. And Peter, over his letter, kind of echoes this sentiment. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. In other words, put someone else above yourself. Don't try to outdo someone else by being competitive and prideful, but serve them, right? Do that earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And then he says, as each has received a gift, spiritual gifts, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as the one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So do you notice this? Well, here's what happens. And last week we kind of left with this challenge. You know, what if all of us on Sunday morning, we got up and the first thing we prayed as we prepared for worship that day was not, God, I pray that I get something good out of church today but instead pray, God, use me at church today to bless someone else. Use me to build someone else up. Use me to encourage someone. Use me to be that, that first person that connects with like a first time guest or something like that, right? Instead of us thinking about what can I get from church, right? 
we're, the first thing on our mind is, what can I give? How can I serve? That's kind of what Peter and Paul both are getting at in these passages. And because when we do that, according to this passage right here, what Peter says, when I'm serving with the strength that God supplies, and I'm doing it so that God may be glorified, as we leverage our gifts, we are meeting with God. God is with us. He's in us. He is here. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so that, that's the point that Paul is making here, because we are the body of Christ. So just like the human body, we as the church have different systems. The human body, it's, it says that there's 11 different systems in the human body, right? And some of you who are in the medical field, you can check this out. Um, I found anywhere from eight to 11, so I got the bigger list. But nervous system, respiratory, I'm not gonna read all these big words. I probably can't even pronounce half of them. And I had to look up what in, integumentary says. I don't even know how to say that word. But that means the skin. That's the outer part of the, so that's, yeah, it's a big word for skin. It's called the skin system. Come on, right? Anyway, <clears throat> I digress. But this is the, so what happens, what happens to human life if any of these systems fail? What happens? Death, yes. What happens if your respiratory system fails? That's not good, right? All of these systems are very different. They're very unique. They're made out of different stuff. They, they're for totally different purposes. But in the brilliance of God, as he's created and designed us, he's placed all these different systems within us to accomplish health and good life, right? Same is true in the body of Christ. We all have different gifts. I mean, just look around the room. There's a lot of different people in this room, up in the balcony. And I know you can't see the people online, but the people online can see some of us, right? But, you know, we can see each other very different we all have unique thumbprints, but also very different in gifts. I mean, some of you are great serving. You know, we, we used the illustration a few weeks ago that, you know, if someone spilled, spilled something, you'd see gifts in action. Someone would start giving the orders what to do. Someone would just be worried about the person who spilled the drink. Someone else would be worried about cleaning up the, spill, the, you know, the spilled mess. You see different gifts in action. We're so different, but we're so essential. Just like if any of one of these systems fails, right, if your gifts, if you hold back your giftedness from the church, the church suffers from a lack of your giftedness because God has placed each of us in the body as he desires. So we are essential for the health of this church family. And so the Lord's body is healthy when all of us energized by the Holy Spirit operate in our own areas of giftedness for the glory of God and for each other's being built up. And so when you serve the Lord and his people through your gifts, God is here with us. We meet with God through using our gifts. Secondly, number two in your notes, we meet with God through clarity. Just think about clarity, understanding. We like to know our pathway. We like to know our direction. I mean, I know this week we have quite a few people on vacation. They're all planning their trips. You know, we have one family that's on the way right now to Gulf Shores, Alabama. Another family took off to Gatlinburg, you know. And so how do they get there? Well, they had to plan their, their, their course, right? Of course, now we can just say, hey, I'm not gonna say it because she'll answer, but S-I-R-I, you know what I'm talking about? I don't wanna say yes, but, but we'll say, hey, Take me to Gulf Shores, Alabama, and she'll do it. She'll plan it out. Well, mine's a she. Yours might be a he. I don't know, but mine's a she. And she'll plan out this whole course, right? But before those days, we had to get out the map, and we had to, look, I'm here. I want to go here. How do I get there, right? I-55 South, whatever, right? We plan our direction. We like to know 
where we're going. We like to know how we get from point A to point B. That is clarity. We like clarity. Some of you, you like to know your trajectory and your career path. You like to know kind of what's next for you. That's helpful. We, we long for that. We like to know what's expected of us. You know, it's so important in relationships. Like in premarital counseling, we talk about expectations a lot. What do you expect from each other? That's so helpful. When, you're, when you get hired on for a job, you want to know what's expected of you. You know, what's your job description? That's helpful for us. It informs us so we know kind of where to focus and what to do. We need for, we yearn for clarity. Because where there is no clarity, there is confusion and there is chaos. You know, Scripture talks about this. Proverbs chapter 29, where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained, right? Or another way to say that is without revelation, people run wild. In other words, without that direction, without that clarity, we run wild. In the book of Judges, there was no leader. There was no like absolute direction for the people that they understood. And so it says in Judges several times, three different times it says, in those days, Israel had no king. And so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And what do you think that resulted in? Chaos, confusion, just horrible situations. Well, that's what happens when we don't have that clarity. Just like pilots trying to land a plane in the fog, no clarity. It increases stress, increases the pressure, the task is much more difficult, etc. But we have clarity, it brings peace, calm, focus, and makes our tasks easier. So here, God's word becomes clear to us. And when that happens, we have these aha moments. And not only does it bring clarity, but we know we've just met with the Lord as he teaches us in his word. And so this is God's purpose for the gatherings, to be clear to us, right? And so he goes on and says, look, and here's what Paul says. If there's these other languages, there must be interpretations because that brings clarity. If, all of, if some of you guys stood up and started speaking in you know, Swahili or Arabic, we wouldn't know what you're talking about. There's no clarity there. So Paul is saying there must be clarity in the gathering. And if there's prophecy, it must be affirmed. You know, in these days, this is before they had the entirety of the New Testament. And so God was still revealing things. And sometimes if a person had revelation, it might be new revelation. And so there before it could be just declared as truth, it had to be weighed, it had to be assessed to determine if that's true or not. Again, for the purpose of clarity. And so that had to be affirmed. And, and I think the, Paul here uses the term, it must be, must be weighed to make sure that what is being spoken is true. And then if it was confusing, right, there must be clear authority. And if confusion, there must be clear authority. So here's where he gives this text about the women, right? And he starts off as in all the churches of the saints. So this is, this is not just a Corinthian command. This, what we're about to talk about was true for all the churches that Paul was writing and, and, and had been in and had talked to. So all of them. So what is going on? So if we, we look at this text, you know, ironically in this passage, we talk about the importance of clarity and yet this is one of those passages that has been twisted and created a lot of confusion about, right? So what does this mean? Is Paul saying that a woman should never speak at any moment or any time in the gathering, right? Because if that's the case, we have erred because, you know, we've had Aaron singing and Jennifer singing and all that. And obviously, your leaders, we're not going to do anything 
consciously against the word of God, right? So, so obviously, this, what, is, what does this mean? What, what is Paul talking about? And so what happens is if we don't dive into the context to see what's really going on, what's Paul saying, we can come to error. So let's first look, what is Paul not saying? What is he not saying? He's not saying that women are not to speak at all in the gathering. How do we know that? Because just previously in 1 Corinthians 11, he says every woman who prays or prophesies in the context is in the gathering must cover her head, right? So, so he's, not, he's not gonna say that in, verse, in chapter 11 and then come back in chapter 14 and counter that. He says, well, I know I said women could do this over back here, but now I'm changing my mind. No, that's not the way the word of God works, right? So that's not what Paul is saying. It's clearly um, to portray a communication that they were not elders in authority. So here's, here's what Paul is saying. Um, this was to clearly portray communicate that the women were not elders. They were not in authority. Paul is not going to give the instruction and then turn around two chapters later and say they shouldn't speak. So some argue, maybe from if, if Paul's saying, you know, that women can't speak. Well, some argue that Paul here that women can't speak in the gathering, but only at home. Here's what's interesting. The Corinthian church met in homes. So that means some women couldn't even speak in their own home. That's, that doesn't make sense either. So again, what is Paul saying? Well, he had just talked about the role of, of assessing the prophecy, right? Weighing in on the prophecy. And that was the biblical rule of interpretation. If we look at this, is when uh, is that you interpret hard passages by using easier passages. So what does it mean? Well, from this chapter, there was this particular problem being addressed, the weighing of the prophecy. And there were different groups in Corinth who were interrupting each other in the church. Some were crying out in tongues in the middle of the church, and some were interrupting everybody with a word from God. Others were disrupting, saying, no, that's not from God. And the whole thing was just horrible. So in this context, Paul tells three different groups, actually, to be silent. Verse 28 it says, don't just yell out in a tongue if there's no interpreter, so be silent. Verse 30, don't interrupt someone else who's giving a prophecy with a better one that you have, so be silent. And now to the women in verse 33, don't be disputing prophecies given by others, evaluating them whether they're from God. That is something that's reserved for the office of the elder. That's why later on in verse 35, Paul tells the women, if they have questions, ask their husbands at home. The word for ask is really the word interrogate. It means more than just simply asking for clarification. It means dispute. It means critique. So it's not that these ladies were just leaning over to each other and saying, hey, what, what chapter are we in again? It's not what's going on here. Paul's referring here to the weighing of prophecy, interrogating it, to establish what's really from God and what is not. That is the function of an elder, and a woman is not to play that specific role. And so, furthermore, in verse 34, it, the word he uses for be silent, it does not primarily mean to stop talking. The majority of times this, this word is used in the New Testament means to hold one's peace. That is, he is urging these women to have a submissive spirit and not assume the role of elder. So that's what Paul is saying here. Women are not to assume the role of elder in the local congregation. That is really the only thing in the New Testament that women can, are not supposed to do, is serve in the office of elder. And, and of course, we don't practice that for deacons either, but, but that is the teaching here. So Paul's not saying that women can't set up and voice a prayer in the service. He's not saying women can't sing and lead out in singing in the service. He's simply saying women cannot be the elder pastor of the church to have that office of elder, which 
fits other scriptures. You know, like if you go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul gives the qualifications for the elder, the pastor. And it's supposed to be a, a man of one woman, and not a woman of one man, right? It's very clear, the language. That's the only role, right, that, that uh, we're looking at in scripture that's supposed to be reserved just for men, which fits the overall biblical paradigm. So the issue of authority is what's at play there. But then we get to number three. We meet with God through the proclamation of the truth. We meet with God through proclamation of the truth. So why does Paul conclude all this portion? He goes to this text, he says, so my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy. The proclamation of the truth, the fourth telling of the truth. It goes back to what he wrote earlier, and I mentioned it earlier, 1 Corinthians 14. It says, if all prophesy, and there's an unbeliever or outsider enters. Let me just clarify that language. Why do we use language outsiders, unbelievers, right? Because there's this thing that happens in the faith called conversion, right? Conversion is when you go from being a non-believer, someone who you might have heard about Jesus, you might have heard about the gospel, but there hasn't been that moment yet where you're confronted with the truth of the gospel, and the result is that you give your life to Jesus. You believe and trust in Jesus, right? There's a conversion that happens there. And in that moment, when you hear the gospel, which let me just explain the gospel so there's clarity on what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ, right? That Jesus, who is God, in a moment in time, left heaven and became one of us. That's Christmas, called the incarnation, God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, who's God the Son. And Jesus lived for approximately 33 years on this earth. He lived a sinless life. He was tempted in every way that we are, yet he remained without sin, Hebrews tells us. And so, at a moment in time, at about the age of 33, Jesus voluntarily went to the cross to offer himself as a sacrifice for us. Because that was, the, that was the system that God had put in place all throughout the Old Testament. Blood for blood, life for life. And in order for, for one of us to be redeemed, there must be a life given for us. Well, Jesus, who is the sinless sacrifice, offered himself as the one sacrifice to satisfy the righteous justice of God for all of time. So Jesus went to the cross for you and for me. Hebrews 12 says that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. So although it was agonizing and terrible for Jesus to go to the cross, it was a joy for him for our salvation. So Jesus goes to the cross on our behalf. And there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So when Jesus died on the cross, this amazing thing happened, right? That at that moment, from then on, everyone who has faith in Jesus, there's this great transaction that takes place. Whereas our sin, our sinfulness, and just think about how much we've sinned. Just, just let that roll, scroll in your mind. Not to be, not to be Daniel Downer this morning, right? But just, just let the tape roll of the things you've done, the lies you've told, the things you've stolen, the arrogance and pride that you've had, the corners you've cut, the times you've cheated. Just, just let that roll. All of that, this great transaction, all of that sin 
is imputed, placed within, placed upon Jesus at the cross. And then through your faith, Jesus, his righteousness, his right standing with God is imputed, placed within, placed upon you, placed in your account. So now when God looks at you, if you have faith in Jesus, he sees the righteousness of Christ in you. Is that not awesome? Is that not great news? Yeah. Well, the sin killed Jesus. Well, actually, Jesus gave his life. He yielded his life, but the wages of sin is death, so Jesus had to die. And if that was in the story, we wouldn't be here because three days later, Jesus, his own power, conquered death. He conquered the consequence of our sin. He conquered sin and death, defeating them, which guarantees us victory. What is victory? What, what do we get into victory? Well, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus, you're completely forgiven as all your sins imputed to Jesus. You're also adopted into the family of God forever, which means you will always be loved. You will always be cared for. You will always be valuable, right? Because you belong to God. It's adopted. You're given a new life. It's a whole new slate. It's a brand new day. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things, just say all things. All things have become new. It's a brand new day, right? You get a new life, but you also get eternal life, right? John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, and that means us, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes, has faith in him, should not perish, but have what? Everlasting, eternal life, forever and forever. That's great news. That's the gospel. And so what happens then, for the outsider, maybe you're here today and you're still kind of an outsider, but you hear this gospel and you're like, that is great news. I want in on that. Well, then you, you, know, you, you, you meet Jesus. You confess Jesus is Lord. Romans 10, 9, confess your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe, trust in your heart that God raised from the dead. You will be saved, rescued. You know, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again, right? This language in the Bible, justified, justification, being saved, it's all synonymous. So you're saved. This, when you're converted, you go from being an outsider, a non-believer, to being a child of God, to being saved, to being an insider in the body of Christ, a part of the church, a part of the body of Jesus Christ. So this outsider to insider. So if all prophesy, truth-telling, forth-telling the truth, whether it's in our small group connection groups, whether it's here, whether it's in our men's Bible study on Wednesday nights or many ladies groups we have, whatever, wherever it is you're hearing the truth, when you hear that, the truth brings conviction. What's that conviction? It's when the Holy Spirit takes the truth of God's word and begins to convince you in your mind and your heart that this is true and you need to act upon it. So it's that conviction that I'm a sinner. I have no hope of eternal life in and of myself, so I need, I need Jesus, right? And John 16, Jesus teaches us about the Holy Spirit. He convicts us of sin. He convicts us of judgment, and he convicts us of righteousness, the big three. So that conviction happens. You're convinced that you need Jesus. And so it elicits response, and he is called to account by all 
that you, this is something we are to do. And then as you come before the Lord, the secrets of your heart are disclosed. If you look at every revival in history, there's always repentance that takes place. You know, always repentance. And what is repentance? It's the change, it's the, the transformation. It's the 180 degree turn. You know, I mean, there's reality. A lot of us. How many of you grew up in going to church as a kid? Yep. Yeah, you grew up in church, you know, and you hear, you hear the gospel all the time. You hear Christmas story, you hear the resurrection story, you hear, you know, the Bible taught all these times. It becomes, if you're not careful, it becomes very rote, very mundane, very routine, right? Repentance is where that changes. When you were convicted by the Holy Spirit, that's where all these things we've heard and been taught in our mind, the truth, all of a sudden begins to change our hearts. You know, the old cliche is a lot of people miss heaven by 18 inches, right? They have a lot of head knowledge, but their heart's not been transformed. I mean, there hasn't been that repentance to take place. And that's super important. So if we look here at our, at our text, the secrets of our hearts is closed. And if you look at these revivals, there's change that happens. There's people sometimes get up and confess their sinfulness. You know, just here recently we had the Asbury Revival. If you watched, if some, some of you went, but if you look online at the YouTube accounts of that, it's people getting up and sometimes they're just confessing their sins. The secrets of their heart are disclosed. And so falling on their face, they worship God and they declare, God really is among you. And here's the thing. If, if you can come into the gathering week in, week out, week in, week out, and not give your life to Jesus and not experience the power of his presence. There should be a flag goes off in your mind and something's not right. Because when the people of God gather, we know God is here, right? That's the promise of scripture. Where two or three are gathered together, I'm there in your midst. And although that's context is about church discipline, it definitely includes the gathering. We are gathered, God is here, he's in our midst. And every week we do this. Every week we get together. Every week we sing songs to God. We sing songs about God. Every week we fellowship with each other in the Lord. Every week a lot of you go to connection groups. I pray more of you go to connection groups. So then those groups, you meet with God, you encounter him through his word, you encounter him through the fellowship of his people. We pray. You count, you encounter God. But if week in, week out you're doing this and there's no repentance, I should raise a flag. Because here, what, what the scripture here shows us is that we repent and we acknowledge God really is among us. So let me just encourage you here as we get ready to close. God is here. God knows everything about you. He already knows those secret things of the heart all laid bare before him. God knows you better than you know yourself. If God came up to you, which he's here, right? And through his spirit, he can do this, but comes up to you and sits right beside you, looks you in your eyes and says, Daniel, I love you. I've created you for great purpose. I'm always with you. Here's what I want to see you change. 
what would he say to you? You're like me, like, it's easy to answer that. I know my sinfulness, I know my, my weak spots, I know my temptations, I know where I fail. It's easy for me to say, yeah. And then God says, I wanna empower you to overcome that. I wanna empower you to change in that. Will you say yes to me changing you by you cooperating with me in your transformation, in your repentance? Will you, will you join me in that? What do you say? Let's talk to God about that. Let's all stand. We're gonna pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you love us so much. We can't even fathom your love. You define your love in 1 John 4, and you say, this is the love of God. Not that we love God, but that God loved us first and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. God, before we even knew what love was, you were already loving us. Before we knew what responding to love looked like, you'd already sent Jesus to take care of us. Jesus, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving me in spite of my spiritual deadness, in spite of my sinfulness, in spite of my arrogance and pride. Thank you for loving me in spite of me. And Lord, I just, I just pray, I guess simply right here, right now, that you would just meet with each one of us through your Holy Spirit. You would convict us. You would speak change into our life. You would give us hope that you're gonna empower us to overcome the obstacles, the barriers, the sinfulness in our life to honor you more. So God, as we walk out of here as insiders, we can truly say like they said here in Corinthians, surely we were in the presence of God. Surely God is among these people. So God, have your way with us. Help us not to be here just to check a box that we came to a church service and did our church thing for the week. God, we're here to accomplish the goal of the gathering, which is to meet with you. So help us to meet with you right here, right now on your terms. If there's outsiders here who need to be saved, who need to give their life to you, Jesus, I pray that happens. God, if there's saved people here who need to repent, God, I pray that that happens. If there's some here who right now are missing it by 18 inches, I pray, God, that that transformation, repentance happens. Lord, this is your time. We're gathered here to meet with you, for you, your glory. So, Lord, just pray that you have freedom to do in us and through us what you desire. In Jesus' name we pray.